listeners, you're listening to another episode of Beckett's Babies, a playwriting podcast. Every week we discuss plays we love, interview theater artists, and share our thoughts on our playwriting and theater. We're your hosts, Sarah Trope and Sam Collier, and woohoo, this is our 100th episode, um, which is just so amazing to think about. Thank you for staying with us all these years. Um, We're so excited to have as our guest today, Brian James Polak, who was born and raised in New Hampshire and currently resides in Chicago. When he's not writing plays, he can be found working as the producer and host of American Theater Magazine's The Subtext, a podcast about what makes playwrights tick. I encourage you to check it out. It's fabulous. Uh, He also received his MFA in Dramatic Writing from the University of Southern California School of Dramatic Arts. Brian, welcome to Beckett's Babies. Hey, congratulations on episode 100. Oh my goodness. Thank you. So, um, you know, we're Beckett's babies, so we like to start with talking about ourselves as babies. So tell us, what was your earliest memory, your life before theater? Oh, yeah. Uh, My earliest memory, like if I'm thinking back as far as I can um, to the first thing I can sort of like visualize, uh, I... Oh, and by the way, I just read or heard recently that... When we remember things, we're not remembering the actual event. We're remembering the last time we remembered that event. Yes. Oh. So you're constantly changing it. It's like a game of memory telephone. Yeah. Oh, that's isn't creepy. that wild? It blew my mind, and I just, I just, I think I saw like a little, a little video on YouTube about this yesterday or the day before, and I immediately went to this memory I'm about to share and thinking about how it must have evolved. Mm-hmm. But uh, over the years, because I think I was like two years old and we were living in a town called Nashua, New Hampshire, and we had this giant willow tree in the backyard. And I'm a, and I would bet it's a it's a tiny willow tree or it was a, or it was a tiny willow tree. And I was so tiny that it seemed ginormous. Mm-hmm. But the memory is me as a as a two year old trying to climb the trunk of it and uh, boosting myself up like probably only like, you know, six to 12 inches <laughs> and then, and then losing my grip and sliding oh. down and the trunk of the tree, just like scraping my entire belly. Like I, I had, <laughs> I had this like chubby baby belly and my shirt rode up as I, as I slid down the trunk and the trunk, scraped my stomach oh, oh my and gosh. so I and so I think I think in my memory uh I wasn't alone I think my mom I think my mom was there like I wasn't a two-year-old playing in the backyard by myself <laughs> I don't know if I remember that my mom was there or if I just over the years I've always assumed that she must have been there but I think it was because the uh the memory is associated with a feeling of pain or something that it implanted into my head. Mm-hmm. And that's why I remember it because mm-hmm. I, I don't have, I don't think I have any other memories from that entire time period. Yeah. It would be interesting to go back through. I wonder how many of people's earliest memories involve some kind of pain or injury. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. right. You know, they tend to be like extremes, like either really, really good and exciting or really, really, mm-hmm. 
bad and painful. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. Cause otherwise, why else would you remember it, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I used to have uh, a better handle on memory because I did a play that involved involved memory. So, uh, you know, as we often do as playwrights, we'll write about a subject we don't know a lot about and we'll do as much research as we can uh, to write a play as accurately and authentically as we can. Uh, And for me, I ironically don't have a fantastic memory. So I learned a lot about memory and then forgot a ton about it. But I think there's something about uh, when an event is tied to uh, an emotion of sorts, then you are more apt to um, to remember it better. <clears throat> yeah, that makes mm. sense. And I also learned that um, music memory, through my research, I learned that music memory is stored in a different area of the brain. It's like music memory is stored in like the frontal lobe. Really? And episodic memory is stored in like the hippocampus, if I'm remembering this correctly, uh, which is why you'll see videos of people who are suffering Alzheimer's or dementia very late in life uh, be able to recall music, but maybe mm. not recall, like, like maybe not recall you as you walk in the room, even though they've known you your whole life, but putting headphones on them, they can sing a song from their childhood. Because that that uh, music is stored in just a different part of the of the mind that isn't impacted by by the disease. Wow. Doesn't that make you wonder, like, what was the role music played in early human oh, <laughs> evolution? Yeah. Like, why would that be, or or what is it that our brains developed that also what what need did we have that also is met by music? I never yeah, even it like, like I just accepted I, I just accepted it as that's just the way it is. I never even asked this question. It's such a great question. I'm always so curious about recently I was talking to somebody about how there were like eight other different kinds of hominids and like then they all went extinct and were the only ones left. And like, what did we do to them? <laughs> you know? Uh yeah. So, uh, okay, so how did you go from being that little person falling down, falling six inches down the tree to getting into theater? I wasn't aware of any of this that I'm about to say at the time, uh, but thinking back on my entire childhood and then uh, early adulthood, I was constantly trying to find something that... I was not only good at, but felt just felt connected to, and that connected me to people. Uh, so when I was very young, uh, I didn't have any hobbies growing up. I I moved around a lot between you know kindergarten and fourth grade. I was in you know a half dozen or more schools. Culminating in when I was in fourth grade, I moved, I was in three different fourth grades in three different towns because we just kept moving. And it was, so I'm 10 years old and, you know, this, this age where you're trying to develop friendships and, and stuff. So uh, it made it hard for me to sort of get into activities and whatnot. Mm-hmm. And I was constantly trying to um, find a thing that other people were doing that I could do that I was interested in. So I, I picked up a saxophone 
in, in, in the second of my uh, fourth grade schools, it was the first time I was introduced to like playing an instrument and uh, I chose saxophone and I wasn't good at it right away and got very frustrated. Uh, so I remember playing it for, uh, you know, learning the first few notes that you learn when you pick up a, a new instrument. And because I didn't nail it and I wasn't perfect right off the bat, I got frustrated and I threw it. And I and I and I dented the bell, the opening, the oh big opening gosh. of the saxophone, and uh, got in a lot of trouble, and then and then never played again. And uh, that really spoke to sort of who I was as a young person. I didn't understand process, and that you're not going to be good at things right off the bat. But uh, and this really impacted me as I got older because I would look at uh, friends in school and see that they were like very good at basketball and so i'm like i want to play basketball and i would try out and i tried out for the basketball team and i wasn't good at it because mm. i hadn't played before but i every like i'm looking at all these people around me who are my age and they're good at it they can dribble a ball and they can shoot why can't i immediately be able to do that uh so it was a lot of sort of like um trying to figure it out and i ended up focusing on sports which is what most, uh, not most, a lot of kids do. Uh, mm. And some of that was due to the fact that theater, which is probably something I might have uh, gravitated towards as a younger person, wasn't particularly ubiquitous. Uh, it was a, in, in like junior high school, I, I, there were little school plays and I did the little school plays, um, but they always involved music and singing. And I've never been able to sing. Like I'm, I'm, I'm kind of tone deaf in a way that uh, I can accidentally find my way onto the proper note and the proper pitch, but I can't replicate it. So, <laughs> so, so I can accidentally sing well for a moment, and uh, you could hear it and be like, "Oh, you can actually sing," and and then I'll try to do it again, and I don't, I can't, I can't. Um, <laughs> So that impacted me in junior high. I was very much aware of being in like the chorus in the the music teacher trying to get me to match a note and I just couldn't do it. And it was so frustrating and embarrassing because like with basketball, I have all of these students, my fellow students around me who seem to be able to do this thing. And then I get to high school and I'm focused on being on the football team which worked out okay for the first couple of years. But as I aged into like the varsity team, uh, I wasn't particularly big. I wasn't mm. bad. Like I wasn't bad. It wasn't like you put me on the field and I was embarrassing myself, but I just wasn't, I wasn't good. So I didn't play a lot and it was, it was humiliating. And I had these friends who were doing theater and uh, a very good friend of mine named Corey who lived on my street. Uh, was doing theater and he was so naturally funny and I wanted to be like Corey and that got planted in my head at age I think 16. Corey was funny. Corey was doing theater. He's so charming and he's fun to be around. I want to be like Corey <laughs> but but theater in high school what there, it wasn't like a robust theater program and it was mainly like all the kids that were in chorus and choir were doing theater and they were doing big musical theater productions every year. 
and I can't sing. It's already been established. So I can't go out for these musicals. So I just, I just avoided it mm. and mm. played sports badly, but then high school comes to an end. And so does your, does the mediocre athletic career. <laughs> so, so I go to undergrad with nothing, with no, no skills or hobbies, no specific thing to, to focus my attention on besides wanting to make friends and, uh, and, mm. and be liked by people. And so I, I kind of channeled that into this, you know, there's this moment years before this, I'm in like seventh grade and out of a sense of, um, insecurity about, about completing a, an assignment, I felt like I was given the social studies assignments to write about the, uh, Western expansion and, um, the, the, um, um, like like everybody moving to California, the wagon trains, like that, mm-hmm. the Oregon Trail, like that kind of stuff. And I had I had an assignment to write a paper on that, and I felt insecure about writing like a research paper. So I asked if I could write something creative, and my teacher gave me the go ahead. And I had never written anything creative before. I didn't even know what creative writing was. I didn't know what poetry was, but something, and I don't know what it is something motivated me to write a series of poems about a family traveling um, in a covered wagon West. Mm. And, mm. and my teacher praised the shit out of it <laughs> in front of the class and academically, I've never been praised academically uh, at that age. I'm like, I'm like, at this point I'm like 13 years old or 14. And, and I was a, I was a smart kid, but a, uh, an underachiever. So I didn't get great grades and I didn't uh, do well in, in my classes. And this one teacher, Mr. Hood, uh, praised me in front of the class and it planted in my head. What I realized years later was this idea that I perhaps could write. And then I get to college and deeply depressed for four years and sort of like this woe is me unhappiness uh, where I felt like, because I, I wasn't, I didn't drink alcohol at the time. Uh, and so I felt I kind of alienated myself by not drinking and I didn't feel like I could connect with other people who were going out or going out and partying and having a good time. So I, and where did you go to college? I went to an undergrad school, uh, called Marymount university, which is in Northern Virginia in the DC, in the DC area. Hmm. Uh, and it's a very it's a very small school. There were like 500 students on campus. So, wow. Yeah. So I knew everybody, and I made a lot of friends. Uh, but I just felt uh, like I didn't belong, and I felt like my friends didn't. I didn't. I didn't know me, so nobody knew me in a way. So I spent hours and hours and hours being like depressed and introspective and asking why like why am i this way why can't i be happy and writing really really bad poetry uh i have i have like three journals from that are filled cover to cover with with really terrible uh (laughs) emotional expressions in poems (laughs) but that but that's just for some reason what i gravitated towards Mm -hmm. uh and it was after graduating from undergrad where now, you know, I've gone through this this time where I was playing sports and that went away. Now I get to college and, you know, I was a college student. I identified myself by just sort of like 
I was a philosophy major and uh, that's sort of how I identified like as a thinker at the time. But then I graduate with no idea what to do with my life. The feeling that I know everybody I'm ever going to know and that if I get married, it's eventually going to be to somebody I've already met. I just don't know who that is. <laughs> oh, the world weariness of the yeah. 22-year-old. Oh, oh, so, and it's just like absolutely clueless mm. that uh, that you just meet people as you go through life. I was yeah. I was really convinced that if I just continued doing what I was doing, I would I would never meet another person. And so uh, I decided to take an acting class. I had a, I had a, I was living in Washington D.C. I had a day job, uh, and I wanted to take an acting class because planted in my head was this idea that Corey was funny. Corey was a good actor. <laughs> uh, maybe I can learn how to act, mm-hmm. and maybe I have aptitude in it. I don't know. So I took this acting class and did it for a few months. And, uh, and it was terrible. It was terrible because it was Meisner. And I don't know if you know anything about Meisner. But to jump into acting as a 22-year-old, having no grounding in theater or performance or anything, and for that to be the first thing you study, it was horrible. And just like when I tried to pick up the saxophone... Or dribble a basketball. I had no mastery of it right away. Mm. And I'm like, oh man, this sucks and I suck. So, uh, but I loved me, like I met people, you know, I was in this group and the class was like once a week. And every, every week I got back with this group of like nine other people who were very different from me and not from my college and of different ages and whatnot. And I loved that. Mm. But I just wasn't very good at it, and I was, and I decided I wanted to move to Boston because Boston, throughout my whole upbringing in New Hampshire, was like my home city. Mm-hmm. So it was calling to me, and I just wanted to live there. So I, I was in this acting class for about nine months, and I, and I told my acting teacher, uh, Mr. Epstein, that I'm moving to Boston, and I said I want to continue, I want to continue with this acting thing what do I do when I get there? And he said, take improv. He said, I think you'll be good at improv. So uh, I was like, okay. I mean, I understood, <laughs> I understood it conceptually. Like mm-hmm. improv means you're making shit up. All right. He thinks I can just, he thinks he, after knowing me for nine months, he's like, this kid can invent stuff. <laughs> so I moved to Boston, found an improv theater called Improv Asylum took jumped into their like program where like their their six level learn improv program and it changed it absolutely changed my life because I had an aptitude for it uh I wasn't great at it but I was good enough where I got through the six levels of a program of the program and I auditioned for their for their like B team their touring company and I got cast so I, for two years, I was on this touring company of, it, uh, of an improv group and I made the close, like close friends. So this was years and years and years ago. And I'm still friends with multiple people from this group. 
but it, it just changed my life. Mm-hmm. Um, and from anyway, from there, I know I'm going on and on and on. Uh, but this is uh, the risk you take when you interview an interviewer. No, I mean, I think it's so helpful for people. Yeah. That, I think so many people will relate to many yeah. of the steps in this Absolutely. process. Well, um, the, the next step takes me to theater. Uh, so there, I'll, I'll, I'll get to the end of this rather quickly. because that's, <laughs> that's sort of like the, the long slog uh, connecting to improv. Um, but it, it connects to sort of like that psychological part of me that I've talked about where I have felt um, insufficient like I'm not as good as my peers and I was not as good as my peers as an improviser. And uh, part of it was because of my Achilles heel, which was, which was music, uh, improv music and improvising songs was becoming a bigger part of this improv theater I worked for and the work that we did. And I just, that's just, I wasn't strong in that area. So I wasn't growing mm-hmm. and I wasn't being elevated to like the, the main stage group. And after two years, they, the, they were having, they were basically re-auditioning everybody because they wanted to call the, the week, which I knew was going to be me. So I quit. And, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. And it was like before they could yes. kick you out, you're like, yeah. I'm going to do this. It was <laughs> like, it was like, we had rehearsals a couple times a week or something like that. And, and they announced on Sunday that uh, they're going to be holding auditions uh, and everybody has to re- audition for their role. And uh, on Monday I went to rehearsal and I quit. And it was, it was the, it was not the worst thing. It felt like the worst thing I had ever done because I was in, like I achieved what I really wanted, which was to be part of a group, to be with people. And I made some amazing friends and I was I was losing it, and I just decided to take the power myself. Like you're not going to fire me, I'm going to fire me. Mm-hmm. And uh, and uh, I like I at the very beginning of warmups, we you know got in a circle, and I said I have an announcement to make, and uh, and I'm 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 leaving the group effective immediately. And I just walked out, and I lived in the same neighborhood where the theater was located, and so I just walked back to my apartment, and then. <laughs> And my friends from the oh, from the group came to my apartment when rehearsal was over and tried to convince me to come back, and I I refused. And um, wow, yeah, this but is like ha- a movie moment. Like they're running down the street, come back, Brian. <laughs> yeah, but it, but really, like the protagonist is pathetic. Like, <laughs> like like you, if you're watching this movie, you'd be like, you'd have you'd, you'd say you'd say like, get over yourself. Probably like that's probably what you what you'd be thinking as a viewer, um, but what happened was um, people I met in that two year time period where I was essentially a professional improviser. Um, people were uh, making starting a theater company and asked me to start a theater company with them, and I was so excited because yeah, that's awesome. Like, like I because I think I think it was two years where I didn't have improv. I didn't have anything. I wasn't part of anything. And, uh, I was just going to day jobs. And, um, so I was like, yeah, start a theater company with people I already knew. I already had these relationships with. And, uh, so I started a theater company was essentially like part of the acting ensemble. And I was the, the managing director. They, they made me the managing director because I was the only one with a, an office job 
<laughs> so they said, you'll know how to do paperwork. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I had no idea what it meant, but I took on that responsibility. And we made plays for the next for the next three years with this company in Boston. And and this was sort of like the the transition period where I was I was exclusively acting and I did a few plays and I was in the middle. I remember this like it just happened last night. I was in this play called uh by Israel Horovitz um called it's called the Sugar Plum. That's the title. It's called the Sugar mm. Plum. Mm-hmm. And it's a two-hander. And uh it was me and another member of the of the company and I remember not having any clue what the play was about, not having any clue what my character wanted or was was supposed to be thinking i just remembered my lines and i remembered my blocking and i would be i performed this like 20 20 times and i'd be in the i was in the middle of a performance picking up the glass of water and folding this piece of paper uh and then on one track of my brain was saying what the hell is this all about why are you doing this like this like this doesn't make any sense like but okay go now walk over here like you're supposed to but why are you doing this like it just like I just didn't get it Mm. and uh because I never really studied it I just sort of jumped into it so I felt like I I didn't belong and I looked at the peers around me like Sally my acting partner in this play who was killer she was just so talented and I'm not as good as her I don't belong on a stage with her so I need to I need to GTFO the stage. <laughs> and, uh, but I stayed in this company and I, you know, I acted a few times and I got cast in other things in the, in town. And, uh, and some people like they would tell me that I'm good. You know, somebody cast me in a play without me auditioning. They just said, we have a role for you. Wow. So, so there was something that people saw that I couldn't see and I didn't understand. Um, and that was what was more important. I didn't understand it. And then uh, we did a play that was that was uh, sort of uh, created by an ensemble, and so lots of people were writing pieces to contribute to this to this um, to this production. And I asked if I could write some things, and the, the the director was like, "Go for it." So I wrote a couple pieces, and uh, I was like, "Ah, oh, writing feels good." And I met somebody at the time who was a writer, like that's what they were pure writer and so I saw through them and meeting their friends who were all writers mm. they were poets and novelists uh like I un- like I started to understand craft for the first time like I never understood the craft of the saxophone I never understood the craft of playing basketball I never understood acting as a craft but it all sort of coalesced around writing it's a craft you need to work on it. And I was like, holy shit, I get it now. So I just started to focus on on writing. And uh, I went to this it, I went to this two-week program at the Kennedy Center, the Summer Playwrights Intensive. And I had written a few things that I had to write in order to get accepted into the program. But it was in this program that was run by uh, Gary Garrison, 
Oh, Garrett. I love Gary yeah. Garrison. He, on, on day one of the program, Gary went around to the group and forced everybody to say that they are a writer. <laughs> <laughs> and, yes. and I said for the first time, I am a writer. And it was so weird, but it was so effective. Like that exercise of forcing me to verbalize that I'm a writer, I literally became a writer that that day. Mm-hmm. And playwriting became that day the it, from the thing that I started to dabble in and find interest in to what I am. I am a playwright. And the transformation... Uh, was complete. The evolution has continued for years and is continuing to this day, but that's, that's where all coalesced. I took a workshop with him and I remember him saying, you have to wake up every morning and say to yourself, I am a writer. Oh yeah. And just like, look at every day through that lens. Yeah. He, um, he, Gary, so, Gary's the best. Yeah. He, so he was so influential to me that, uh, because he's like that type of person where he's not mean. He is just, he's just honest and he cares about you and he cares mm-hmm. about you being able to do what you want to do. So if you want to be a writer, he wants to help you get there. And I was so brand new at the time. Uh, you know, he was, he was trying to explain things. I just couldn't quite comprehend. Um, like I couldn't understand uh, dramatic action. Like it just didn't make sense to me how to write a monologue mm. that was active. Like mm. what, is, what does active mean? You know, they're actively talking, right? Like, like, so intellectually, like I had a long, I had a long ways to go, but years later, uh, you know, I, I, I connected with Gary once and tw- once or twice over the years and we maintained a, you know, a, a, uh, not a friendship because I, I was living in Los Angeles and he was living in New York, but I saw him several times over the years when I was graduating from grad school, seven years, seven years after that event at the Kennedy Center where I said I'm a playwright, uh, I was finishing grad school with my MFA at USC. And as I was at the Kennedy Center again because they had the Kennedy Center College Theater Festival. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, I was there because one of my plays won an award and, an, and another one of my plays was up for an award. So I, I arrived at the Kennedy Center uh, like oh, two years shy of my seven month my seven year anniversary of declaring my playwritingness, and uh, I won an award and it was just so amazing to win a playwriting award. And then I had the second play that was a, a a long one act that was a finalist, and they were going to announce who of all the finalists who won. Uh, and what they did was they did full readings of all of the four finalist plays. And like a moment at the Oscars, it was like, and the winner is. <laughs> and uh, they they called my name as the winner. And I was sitting in the back of the theater and I was like stunned. I had never heard, like, it was such a dramatic moment. And I walk down the aisle and I walk up on stage and I get the plaque from the person and they're taking my picture. And I turn to go back up up the aisle to where I was sitting and sitting in the very front row aisle seat was Gary Garrison and he was beaming and he was clapping <laughs> and, and as I'm walking past him, he grabs my arm and he pulls me down and he whispers in my ear, 
that's a great fucking play. (laughs) (laughs) And I start crying. But but I just walk. I just, I just, I just leave. I just walk up the aisle to my seat in the back row by myself. I was sitting by myself and I'm like crying because I just, there was too much emotion. I could not, I could not handle it, but I will never forget Mm -hmm. him grabbing me and pulling me down and telling me that that was a great fucking play. It was like the ultimate culmination of a perfect bookend for starting and having him force me to admit that I'm a writer to this, to that moment. It was just like so wonderful. Yeah. That's such a powerful moment. Um, and, I, you know, I have to say, um, when you, when we started the show, you were talking about memories and how you're like, I have trouble mem- remembering. And I'm like, uh, I feel like I was in a whole hero's journey here. <laughs> like, yeah, like, I feel like I was, I'm there every moment of the way uh, as you discover yourself oh, and you're learning about yourself. <laughs> I think you're a good memory, Brian. <laughs> I think you have a great memory. But these are the only things I remember. <laughs> so I just want to really quickly just jump in now to, um, so here's this momentous, like, incredible moment in your life. And to shift gear, let's talk about your show, The Subtext. Um, it's a podcast uh, you that you're, you interview playwrights and you kind of un- try to understand the, um, through, through them, like through the interviews, you kind of understand the overall big picture of American theater. And so I'm so curious, like, you know, um, how you got into the show, um, and what have you learned along the way? Uh, I was working, uh, when I was living in Los Angeles, I was working at a theater as like the marketing communications, engagement, social media, like doing all of this stuff at this theater called, uh, Boston court in Pasadena and the theater community, you know, Los Angeles itself is just enormous. Uh, but the theater community is not enormous. It is very mm-hmm. spread out, but it is very small. And because of that, I was able to meet tons of people and uh, make a lot of friends and sort of just be like known in the community, uh, mainly because of my work at Boston Court and running their social media. People got to know me through that. And one of the people that got to know me was this woman named Danny Oliver, who was working for LA stage Alliance, um, RIP 2021. Um, <laughs> if you don't know the LA stage Alliance story, it's too long uh, and too complicated to <laughs> yeah, get into right now. So it's crazy. But yeah. LA stage Alliance has just ended at the time though. Uh, I had known LA stage Alliance for a few years and I knew the people that ran it and worked it, worked there. And um, this was in the beginning of 2015 Danny, um, in her capacity at LA stage was launching a new online, um, platform or like online magazine, so to speak. And because she knew me through my job and knew that I was a playwright also, in addition to being, you know, a theater administrator, she said, do you want to contribute to, uh, this new magazine that we're launching? And I was like, sure, what did you have in mind? And she said, well, would you be interested in doing like a weekly or a monthly, you know, like in- playwright interview thing and uh, like a column? And 
and I was like, no, I'm not really interested in that. <laughs> I, like, that's not my skill set. Mm. I'm not. I'm not. A, I'm not an interviewer. I'm not a journalist, and I don't really know how to write in that form. So I felt like it would be taking on something. It would be putting myself into a position where I wasn't going to succeed. And um, the playwright Adam Simkowitz has his mm. uh, playwright interview series that he's been doing for years and years and years. And I felt like he was already doing this very well and kind of occupying the space. So uh, I felt like there was nothing I could contribute. And then Danny said, well, what about a podcast? And I said, wow, that could be interesting. Uh, I don't know how to do a podcast, uh, but I had done one. I had done a sports podcast years earlier before people even knew what podcasts were. Uh, a friend of mine and I in Boston did a did a, like a sports podcast, and it was fun. But I don't know the I don't know any of the technical stuff, uh, so I could do it if you have somebody else to handle everything, like recording it and editing it and putting it out into outer space. And she was like, "Sure, we'll cover all that." So uh, she and I spent a couple months kind of talking through uh, what the title would be. You know, we, we, we emailed back and forth tons of titles and um, I suggested the subtext amongst a group of like 10 other titles. And she was like, that's the one. So it, mm. be- it became the subtext. And then she uh, asked me to send her a bunch of like she was, all, uh, you know, creating the logo for the show. And she asked me to send her a bunch of pictures and I sent her a bunch of pictures and she took this one picture of me that I, uh, the selfie that I took in a, in a mirror at, uh, I was at a Lark, the Lark Playwrights Retreat in July of 2014. And I took this photo in a mirror and she ended up taking it and it became the logo that's been the same logo ever since then. And, uh, and so at the time, I wasn't really a good, a big podcast listener, but the format of the subtext really was born out of Mark Maron's WTF. Because when I knew I was going to start a podcast, I started to listen to podcasts. And uh, I, I, I plugged in WTF and I was listening to his. And he's a comic, so he is funny in a way that I'm not funny. But what I liked about his format was every episode started with a riff like he'll just talk and he'll, he'll go for like 15 minutes and he'll talk about his life and he'll talk about um observation his cat his cats, <laughs> talk about his cats all the time and they keep dying and it's so sad yeah i know um, but i was like i can't do that but i like how the, i like the sort of like emotional connection i'm developing with mark Marin through him telling these stories so i thought okay, what's my version of that? So uh, I just started to write out these observations and experiences that I'm having uh, in my life. And I'll write these, um, I'll write these monologues that are anywhere from like two to five minutes long about something that happened in my day uh, or something that I've just been thinking about lately. And, uh, and Danny was totally on board with this as sort of like a cold open for each episode. 
Uh, and then as Marin does, it launches immediately into like an hour long conversation. And that's what I did. So we have this cold open of me um, talking about something and then theme song opening credits straight into an hour long interview that for years was never edited. Like we never, mm. we never cut anything. It just went an hour. So all of the little foibles and hiccups that happen along the way, they would all just stay in. And the other thing that would stay in is my tendency to ramble or stutter through questions. <laughs> I am just like, it's, just, it's like a hiccup that I have. It's just part of the way I talk, especially when I get, when I talk to somebody I know even less and I get a little bit more nervous about it, I mm. stammer through tons of questions. But I think that's what makes it feel so natural and conversational. Yeah. I think so. I think somebody and somebody planted that in my head early on that they liked the mistakes. So I started to find confidence in them. Um, so anyway, that's just how it, that's how it all it all came together uh, back in 2015. My very first interview was with uh, Madri Shaker, who is somebody I've known for years. She was a year ahead of me at USC. And she's amazing. She's an amazing writer. Um, and I just adore her. So I've always mm -hmm. wanted to get her back on the, the podcast, uh, the present day podcast. And like, because we talked in 2015, I think May of 2015. And after that uh, conversation, she, like a year later, she's uh, at Juilliard and she's winning all these awards and having all these major productions and wonderful successes. And then she gets married and has a baby and is writing for television. Like her life has like changed so much. So I like, I want to talk to her all over again. Mm. But my very first uh, opening monologue, I'll never forget it because I guess it's tied to an emotion, um, which is why I'm remembering it. But I was sitting at a Starbucks in Pasadena where I always went to write before I'd go to work in the morning. And I was just sitting there with my headphones and my ears writing. And, um, and I was kind of, my table was kind of near that area of Starbucks where you wait for your latte. And a man was standing right by my table and he had his like, he had his like arm on the table and, uh, and I was just writing and he looks at me and he's like, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I'm, a, I'm writing. And he said, how do you do that? Like <laughs> gesturing in this room. He's like, like, it's so loud and busy. And I said, I don't know. I just, I could just do it. And uh, I pull my headphones out of my ears and allow this conversation to take place. And it turns out he's on his first day out from um, a halfway house where he was wow. for uh, alcoholism. It was like a, a, a court mandated halfway home program. And this was mm. his first day out of it. And he's getting a latte and getting on a bus and going to the beach. Wow. And he tells me this whole story and he tells me about his life, like growing up in North Carolina and getting into trouble and all this stuff. And he's just hoping that he, in this moment, his first, like because the halfway home was down the street from the Starbucks, he was actively sort of narrating his thoughts to me about how he hopes that this is going to take and that he's going to be okay. And his name was Gary, I believe. No, no, that was somebody else. Anyway, uh, I thought his name was Gary. It might not have been Gary. I think it was Gary or Derek or something. Anyway, he left. He got his latte, said goodbye, and left. 
and I've been thinking about him ever since. I hope he's okay. Wow. That's such a great story because he was having this new beginning and you were, you know, being a writer and thinking about yourself as a writer and being seen as a writer, which I think is such a valuable Mm -hmm. experience. Oh, yeah. I mean, don't you? I just miss being in busy coffee shops (laughs) so much. It's like the one thing, like everything else pre-COVID, I could take it or leave it. No, that's not true. But, like, the thing I find myself daydreaming about is, like, people watching in a cafe Mm -hmm. um, and just kind of sitting and drinking some coffee. Yeah, I am so with you. It's, like, that that feeling of uh, putting headphones into my ears is, like, an invisibility cloak. Mm. Like, like now I'm here and you can't see me because Mm -hmm. I have headphones in, so I'm clearly not paying attention to you, but I really am. My God, that was one of the first things Sarah Cho ever taught me, which was like, oh, all you need to do to get people not to bother you is just put in your headphones. Yeah. <laughs> so I was like, people are always coming up and talking to me, and I, I didn't want to interact. And I just watched how Sarah would deflect attention. It's, it's brilliant. <laughs> I When I get on an airplane, I never, I never, ever, ever want to talk to you sitting next to me. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. I yeah. never do. No. I, when I sit down, I put my headphones in and they're not even plugged into anything. <laughs> they're purely a prop because yeah. I don't want you to talk to me. And they stay. Mm-hmm. And I might end up plugging them into my phone or to the armrest to watch the thing. But as soon as I sit down, they're in my ears and they don't leave my ears for like the duration of the flight because I don't want to be talked to. Yeah. Wow. I know, because like I always think that's gonna work if I just am reading a book, but like there's always some man who's like, "What are you reading?" Yep, yep. Always, that's <laughs> always it's always a man, isn't it? <laughs> always a man. Yeah. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that's gotta be the name of somebody's memoir. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my memoir is gonna be called "Never a Man." <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, so after doing all of these interviews with so many playwrights, what do you think you've learned about theater, American theater, being a playwright? Yeah, I love this question. Uh, it, it took a while for, for me to have an answer to this, but uh, in the past year or so, I started to realize what it is that I'm learning uh, through doing all the have, recording all these conversations, and it started a few. It started uh, during the time when I was in Los Angeles before I moved to Chicago, before American Theater took on the podcast. Uh, I was having a conversation with Carla Ching, and in that conversation, we were talking a lot about uh, what success is, what it means mm. to be successful, and what it means to achieve success, and. Uh, ever since that conversation with Carla, the concept of success is the thing that kept returning in virtually every conversation that I had hmm. with with playwrights. And I wasn't aware of how often I talked about it before uh, recording the episode with Carla. Probably often, but I, I wasn't conscious of it until this moment. And so over the years, I just... I, I, 
I end up asking, inevitably we'll end up asking this question about um, how do you define success for you and, or, or do you feel successful? And I interviewed Paula Vogel in the fall of 2018 and I asked her about success. Mm. And she talked about how she doesn't feel successful. And that, what? And that, that, blew, that blew my mind. But I started to understand what she was saying. And so, since, so from, from the fall of 2018 to probably like the, up into the era of COVID, uh, that would be sort of like coming back into my mind um, repeatedly. Like even Paula doesn't feel successful. At my, my impulse was in the moment when she said it, I was like, well, shit, I'm never like, what am I? Right. Like, what am I going to achieve? Right. If you've achieved all you've, all you have achieved and you don't feel it, I am like doomed. Um, but over the years, I started to understand um, what uh, what success really is. And I think I started out believing success was a destination. You know, it was like looking at mm. all these playwrights who have achieved things that we yearn to achieve you know, Pulitzers or, or Broadway productions, um, whatever. And that's the des- as, as if that's the destination, but I've realized that success is not a destination. Success is a meal that is nourishing us. And it Ooh, lasts, it lasts it. for a period of time and we are nourished, you know, depending on what that success is, because we all define for ourselves what the success is. For some people, it might be getting the storefront uh, theater in Chicago to do a three-week run of your little play, and I don't, I don't mean little play as in like um, to diminish it at all. But um, and I'm really talking about myself because that's my level of success. Uh, but to get that, or to win a Pulitzer, or or to get to the O'Neill, and mm-hmm. like like that is a thing that is a wonderful sort of like milestone. Uh, and it's going to nourish you for a while, but it's not the end. So after a period of time, you're you're going to be hungry and you're going to need another meal. And uh, so you're going to need to achieve another mm-hmm. level of success in order to be nourished again. And that is the that's the thing that I started to realize and and sort of relating it to a meal is is honestly something that has come to me in the past like six months, honestly. Um, and I think it was in the conversation I had with Jen Silverman a few months ago, mm. where she, at the end of the conversation, she's talking about um, the journey being like finding, I, I can't remember how she, I'll have to listen back, but, but basically finding joy in the journey of what we do uh, because that's, that's what we can control. We can't control the end result of, of mm. what it is we do. I have these conversations uh, with Nick, my fiance, a lot about this. What I feel like you put into such a great image because the way we talk about success is like people never really leave LA because they're like, you know what? As soon as they're about to give up or something like, you know, I'm leaving, I'm going back home or something. Then it's like, oh, I'm a, you know, an extra on this sitcom. Like that's like, and then you kind of stay here a little longer, but seeing it as like a meal, is something that is 
true. Like we, I don't know. I and I kind of, I mean, like you put it in, a, in like a nice way, but I kind of see it as a almost like a negative to me though, because it's a meal that that really doesn't satiate, like won't really last that long. And then they're like, well, when's my next meal <laughs> gonna be? Yeah, and um, I actually thinking like thinking in terms of like the the actor's life in Los Angeles uh, mm-hmm. to play out the metaphor more. You know, you need to eat every day to survive, and those actors that are able to book maybe just like a one day gig on this sitcom that will take you through you know to the next meal. But you need to get your next meal, and if you are able to string all these meals together, you're able to survive. And if you can't string a series of meals together you're gonna starve so you need to do something else Mm, wow yeah i just want a buffet yeah (laughs) all you can eat buffet just give me that all you can eat buffet (laughs) oh man all right so before we move on to glistens um there's a part we like to ask you know what advice you have for playwrights but you know what i was like Maybe as like podcaster to other podcaster, what advice do you have for us? No pressure. <laughs> I feel like I should be asking you that question because I've only done 64 episodes <laughs> in total. You've done a hundred. Done- <laughs> yeah, but you have been doing it for longer. Yeah, way longer. Uh, I Well... I don't, I don't know. It's like, it's so hard. I, I, I struggle with the idea of advice because everything is different for everybody. Mm. So, so I'll get to, I'll land on advice in a, in a second, but as usual for me, it's going to take me a, a roundabout way to get there. Um, with regards to like writing uh, or, or any sort of creative endeavor, you know, you talk to people who do the similar thing. And depending on the personality, you might get something like, well, what you need to do is X, Y, and Z, because that's how they do it. And they think that because that works for them, it is the rule to apply to everybody else who does. Right. That. And so I'll, I'll fall into these conversations or I'll witness them online about um, how do I write this play or how do I do X? And then having somebody sort of, um, always a man uh stepping up <laughs> stepping up and saying this is how you do it and i and i'm also a teacher i teach playwriting and uh i i don't i don't believe in a way i think so much of it depends on um what moves you and what's important to you and what's going to keep you going so there's this idea that i have to write a play that someone's going to like because I just want to get a production. And uh, the way I think of it is, well, what's the play that you want to write? Because you're not going to get a production anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I don't mean, I mean that that's like the exaggerated cynical view, but like it's the the point is it's so hard to get it. Right. Like to, to get it, you might as well find joy in the process. And so true to find joy in the process to follow what matters to you and what moves you. Cause so, I mean, imagine getting a production of a play you wrote that you don't like that much. God, oh. wouldn't that be painful? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I've seen productions of plays that were written like on commission and it was just like an assignment. And I have felt it in the like mm. in the sort of like not the authenticity of the voice, but just sort of like it feels phoned in. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. uh, with regards to like what you're doing with your podcast, I would just say keep doing the like following it the way that it it moves you and motivates you so if in a year from now you're like hey sam i'm like kind of tiring of doing things like this the way we've been doing it what if we tried to switch it up uh you know if that's your motivation like follow that there's Mm. no there are no rules Mm. just because it's so hard to keep a thing going for a long period of time, as you know, you've done a hundred of these now that, uh, you've got to find, you've got to find something in it. It's gotta be a nugget in it to, to sort of keep you, keep you going, keep you motivated. I think that's very wise. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I have struggled with this myself. I have, I have back when I was doing this in Los Angeles, I had Danny as my sort of like she was like my boss essentially, but also sort of like my guru. Uh, I would month after month be connecting with a playwright. Um, I am, I admire, but as also, I am also super jealous of. And every month started to feel like a reminder of how unsuccessful I was as a playwright. And there were multiple times where I was ready to quit. And she talked me off the ledge. And then I moved to Chicago and the, the, the podcast didn't exist for months and months. Uh, I, and I thought it was over, but then I learned that uh, I could carry it on if I wanted to. So I pitched it to American theater and they said, yes. And we relaunched, we relaunched it. And then I found myself in the same position again, after a few months and I started it in January of 2000, I restarted it in January of 2018 and I'm going for these first few months of, uh, 2018 and I find myself feeling that way I felt a few years earlier where Danny helped me and I didn't have a Danny anymore I was self I was like I was producing it all myself I was doing all the editing and Mm. uh finding all the playwrights and all of that stuff and um and it was again to recall the Paula Vogel episode where she she made me feel like what the work I was doing mattered Mm. it mattered to people and that uh she talked about how it's a thing that i can still do to contribute and be part of the theater community at large in between um opportunities to be an actual playwright writing plays and having plays produced which is why we're here doing what we do in the first place and that kind of hit the reset button for me emotionally uh, and kept and, and and sort of refocused my uh, attention on the podcast and why I should I should keep doing it, and it's kept me going ever since. I have had times where I'm like, uh, I don't I don't know if I can, how long I can keep doing it, but I just think about her and what she mm-hmm. said to me and how much that how much that meant and that uh, like like I said at the beginning, I I just wanted to be part of something and to be be with people. And that's what motivated me to uh, be an athlete growing up and 
that's what motivated me to want to take an acting class and then be part of a theater company. Like it was always about being with people. And when, you know, the playwright is the one that's alone in their silo writing scripts, trying to get to the point where they can sit around a table with others to work on their play. This podcast is a thing that I can continue to do to be with people. And it's much more in my control. Whereas uh, my plays when I'm done writing them are out of sort of out of my control. Yeah, that makes so much sense. I mean, yeah, you started off talking about being that kid who wanted to be funny and wanted people to like you. And I just think so many playwrights have that deep down, that just like deep desire Mm. to be not only seen, but like liked. (laughs) You know, we all just want to be liked so badly. And, and so I, you know, it's really hard when we're all by ourselves at home and there's no live theater happening to sustain, you know, that drive yeah. to find something mm-hmm. um, internal to drive us rather than that external validation. I mean, I think even in the best of times, even when there is theater happening, it's like, how do you, how do you keep making the work um, so that you can get it to that point where it's in front of an audience? That's the big question. <laughs> well, Brian, thank you so much for being on our show. Um, and where can our listeners find you? Uh, well, my, my social media handles are my initials spelled out phonetically BJP. And my website is actually the same thing, but it's also, uh, Brian James com, And that's where all the, all the writing info is located. Uh, and if you're on New Play Exchange, I'm on New Play Exchange too. All right. Well, here we go. Here's glistens. <laughs> um, so this is the part of our show where we just sort of like to um, share our favorite glistens of the week, in which it could be a music you learned, a news headline, anything that caught your attention, a memory, a dream, like anything. <laughs> um, so I'll start first. Um, so today, when the this episode is released it's actually my fiance's birthday so i just want to say happy birthday to nick uh he doesn't listen to the show but i'm just gonna do it here happy birthday um nick. <laughs> happy birthday nick just so it's out there um uh gentleman does not reveal their age but their fiance does and so his, he's gonna be 38 so <laughs> all right so sam what's yours um, I just finished reading a novel called The Night Watch by Sarah Waters. Um, I really love her work. She writes a lot of historical fiction. It's all, almost always, well, I think always so far of what I've read, it's always about lesbians in like historical settings. And this book um, is about London during World War II, and it's told backwards. So it starts in 1947 after the war and there are three sections in it. So it goes backwards in time following the lives of these characters. And what I found so interesting about it, reading it now during COVID is, um, you know, you arrive at 1941, I think is the first or the last 
flash first section. And you see these characters before they're all, you know, deeply traumatized by the war. But you started off with them after. And, and just seeing how something so momentous and tragic can completely change who people are and set their lives in different directions. Um, I, I just found it incredibly moving. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, who we were pre-COVID and who we're going to be post-COVID and how we've been kind of, um, I'm thinking of us like like uh, pool balls or billiards balls. <laughs> like we've all bounced mm-hmm. off. We've gone, mm-hmm. we've been pushed in different directions and like yeah. what's going to happen mm-hmm. next. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's my question. The Night Watch. What about you, Brian? I used to be a big brother in the Big Brother Big Sisters organization mm-hmm. like 20 years ago. Uh, I had this little brother named Marquise and we were, we were together for about two years. So I think he was, it was like 11, age 11 to 13 or 12 to 14. Um, I can't quite remember how old he was, but he was about that age. And, uh, I, I, I always, for years and years, I always thought about how I wished I was older when I was his big brother, because I would have been a better big brother to him. And, uh, so all these years have passed and I recently, just last week, thought about, can I find him on social media? Mm. He'd be 20 years older. So I don't really, you know, what is he going to look like? I don't remember his last name. But I went on Instagram and uh, I put in Marquise. And I just started to scroll through Marquise's. And one of them had um, area code 617 in their, in their like, Instagram handle and he's from Boston and that's where I was. His big brother was in the city of Boston and that's the Boston area code. So I'm like, huh, maybe this is him. And so I click on it and it's private. Uh, so I can't scroll through photos to really, <laughs> and you know, on, you know, on Instagram, yeah, yeah, like yeah. The, the sort of like the main picture is so tiny. You can barely really see. Right. So I looked at it and then I came back and forth like am i gonna click request friend or whatever like uh and so i because you have to just send a message right well yeah. it's it just says like you have to request it and then yeah. they then they look at you and are like who's this fool <laughs> um and then so i so it took me a couple days but i eventually just said oh screw it i'm gonna click it and i clicked it and i didn't get a response he didn't accept he didn't accept my friend request or whatever you call it uh on the first day and then the second day uh still and i was like oh i it just must just be the wrong person but then um four days later i got a message in my inbox my instagram inbox and it said omg big bro (laughs) and it was him wow And, and i couldn't believe it and i said i said i can't believe you remember me and he said you had a huge impact on me. Oh my God. And I couldn't believe it because I felt, even at the time, I felt like I am a, I am a shitty big brother. I wish I just had my shit together. Uh, Like I always thought that while I, while we were actually doing it. And so um, we're going to connect in person next time, next time I'm in Boston. 
That's so cool. I'm so, I love that. I'm so excited about it because then I was able to like scroll through his his Instagram feed and see like he's got a great life. He's got kids and he's got he's like he has all these fun pictures of the stuff he does for his job and uh, it was just awesome and it made it totally made my day and I'm still kind of buzzing about it and it was about a week ago. And he's like older now than you were when you were his yes. Yes. So, yeah, that's so cool. It's oh. crazy. Yeah. Time is so weird. I know. Wow. I mean, okay, I guess I'll admit there's one good thing about social media, which is that it allows people to reconnect <laughs> after 20 years. Yeah, well, that's the original good thing. And it just doesn't, yeah. the good thing doesn't rear its head as often anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what a, that was such a perfect way to end the show. I good know. Heartwarming note. Um, <laughs> Brian, thank you so much for coming into our show and just sharing your story. And um, yeah, this is really, this was awesome. Yeah, I loved, love, love talking to you guys. Thanks so much. And congratulations on episode 100. Here's to 100 more. Woo! <laughs> Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Beckett's Babies. If you enjoyed what you heard or learned a thing or two about playwriting, be sure to like, subscribe, and share the podcast with your friends. And if you'd like to reach out and share with us your thoughts on playwriting and theater, or maybe be a guest on the show, uh, be sure to visit our website at www.beckettsbabies.com. That's www.beckettsbabies.com, and you can contact us there. Thanks for listening.